Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. I'm your host for this week, Farmers Guardian editor, Ben Briggs. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure that you stay up to date with all the new episodes. Coming up on the show this week, we mark Climate Week with a Net Zero special. There's no doubt about it, 2020 has been a year of weather extremes around the world, so it seems like a good moment to talk about climate change and how farming fits into this. There's so much misinformation on the subject, but our guest, Professor Frank Mitlona, has come armed with the facts, backed up, thankfully, with the science. Based in California and, ironically, speaking to us as the most recent wildfires raged, Frankie's looked to the world over from members of the public to the United Nations for his expertise. So, what actually is livestock farming's role in climate change? Which industries are the world's big polluters? And what can farmers do to minimise their impact on the environment? And how can they talk to members of the public about the issue in a fuller, more factual way? Jez Fredenberg has been finding out more. The Country Land and Business Association is the only organisation solely dedicated to the protection of land and property rights and promoting the interests of the wider rural economy. We help our members work in the best interests of the land, wildlife and the environment. Join today at www.cla.org.uk. Twenty twenty has been a year of extremes. It started with Australia burning, then in the UK, flooding, followed by drought, followed by more heavy rain. And right now the western part of the US is quite literally aflame. So it seems like a good moment to talk about climate change and how farming fits into this. As part of a farmer's garden special, I've been talking to Professor Frank Mitlona. This has got to be one of the most interesting interviews I've done so far, and I really hope you guys find it too. Frank is an air quality extension specialist in the Department for Animal Science at the University of California, Davis. In a nutshell, that means he looks at the environmental impact of livestock, particularly on air quality, which of course includes greenhouse gases. Frank is looked to the world over from members of the public to the UN for his expertise in debunking misconceptions, getting to the science and painting a fuller, more nuanced picture. You might also know him from Twitter. His account GHG Guru has more than 7,000 followers and his blog is packed full of explainers. So let's talk to Frank. You're still ploughing on and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. So, Frank, we we know obviously that cows produce a lot of methane and we know that methane contributes to climate change as a greenhouse gas. But what from your research does that does that tell us? Because it's not the whole picture, is it? Well, methane is a potent greenhouse gas and uh, we definitely do not want to put out additional amounts of it. So um, what is 
really requiring some nuanced discussion is that methane is really quite different compared to other greenhouse gases. Part of that has to do with its lifespan. So let me explain a little bit. So there are three main greenhouse gases we are concerned with. The one is carbon dioxide or CO2. The other one is methane and another one is nitrous oxide. These three greenhouse gases, uh, they differ with respect to their ability to trap heat from the sun. With uh, CO2 being the least heat trapping, methane about 28 times more and nitrous oxide 265 times more heat trapping per molecule of gas. So that in itself tells you methane is a force to reckon with. However, there's another difference, and that is, as I indicated before, the lifespan. Namely, uh, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide are long-lived climate pollutants. In the case of CO2, uh, carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for almost a thousand years once it's emitted. And that makes, that makes CO2 a so-called stock gas. And that means every time you drive your car and CO2 leaves your exhaust pipe, it will add to the existing stock of what's already out there. So the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere have one way and one way only, and that's up, up, up and up. Nitrous oxide is very similar, also a stock gas, but methane is not. Methane is actually produced and also destroyed in a reasonably short period of time. It takes about 10 years for a methane molecule to be destroyed uh, through a process called oxidation. And this is a really big difference between the long-lived climate pollutants such as CO2 and nitrous oxide on the one side and the short-lived climate pollutants such as methane. Why? Because if you have a constant source of methane, let's say a constant herd of cattle, then the amount of methane put out by those cattle on the one hand and the amount of methane destroyed are almost in balance. It's a problem, methane becomes a problem if you grow your herds, okay? So let's say you have 10 million in one year or in one decade and you now increase that herd to 12 million, then you are adding new additional methane from those new additional 2 million cattle uh, in a one-time pulse. And that's a problem. We don't want to see that. What's really interesting is if you have constant methane, then the amount of methane produced and the amount of methane destroyed are in balance. And that means no additional carbon added to the atmosphere. And I have to underscore no additional carbon added to the atmosphere and hence no additional warming. But that's really what we're after. How can we reduce all sectors of societies of society that add additional warming to the atmosphere? Because we are trying to limit that. One last word, one last word on this. If you manage to reduce methane, for example, by feeding feed additives or by becoming more efficient or so, or you use technologies to reduce methane from the manure of those animals, then you're actively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And this is what makes methane so important. If you reduce it, you can have an immediate cooling effect. And that is really exciting to farmers. Is it possible then to say what size herd we would want the global livestock population to be so that there was a kind of constant balance there because I'm, I'm guessing that the size that it's at at the moment although like you say if we don't add to it that is keeping it stable but we've we just still got like too many in general too much methane in general being put out yeah so there's uh, there's more nuance needed here because there are two mega trends the one trend in the developed world, such as European countries, American countries, uh, 
is one where livestock herds have been constant or decreasing in size over the last five, six, seven decades. So, for example, here in the United States, we used to have 25 million dairy cows back in 1950. 25 million. Today we have 9 million dairy cows. And with this much smaller herd, we're now producing 60% more milk. So our herd sizes have shrunk in dairy, in beef, and in the other livestock commodities. But with the much fewer animals today, we are producing much more food. The same is true for the, for the UK, the same is true for other European countries, and so on. So that's the one side of the medal, the, developing country, uh, the developed countries. But the other side of the medal is the developing countries. Here, many poor nations are lifted out of poverty, and the first thing families do when they have more disposable income is to increase the amount of animal source foods in their diet to afford this extra egg or glass of milk or whatever for their kids and for their for the other family members. And as a result, livestock herds, particularly cattle herds, in the developing world are indeed increasing. And that's a challenge globally because they're increasing fast. So I just told you we have 9 million dairy cows in the United States. We are a major dairy producer. In the country of India, there are 300 million dairy animals. And so they don't need 300 million to produce uh, the amount of milk they need. But each animal is so inefficient that their numbers are so large and they're growing. So globally, numbers are increasing and that's a problem. In the developed world, that's not the case. Okay, so if that's why efficiencies are just are so important then, I guess. Efficiencies are paramount. Look, um, here in the United States, and I'm sorry I will always come back to it because that's where I live and have worked uh, for the last 20 years, Uh, we have we are home to 8% of the world's beef cattle, 8%. But we are producing 18% of the world's beef. And so efficiencies are indeed extremely important because if you optimize the amount of product that comes from an animal, the amount of meat or milk or whatever else you, you grow there, then that means overall you can shrink herd sizes. And that's what we have been doing for the longest time. Okay, so if we if we're looking at nuances here, and you've you've obviously just mentioned the difference between developing countries, and and like you said, meat is a, it's a huge factor when we're talking about nutrition and development in people's lives. What does that mean when we're talking about the developed, the particularly like Western world that has been eating meat, you know, quite a lot of meat and dairy for quite a long time now, and where we are in terms of the amount that we consume and w what is a safe level to be consuming in terms of climate change it, with the current efficiencies that we have, say. Before I go into consumption levels, just really quickly, if, uh, first of all, I want to make sure everybody understands I'm not pointing fingers at the developing world or so. I'm not saying here they are, they are doing something wrong, they are doing something bad. I'm just um, stating what we know to be the truth, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, points out that between 70% to 80% of all greenhouse gases associated with livestock globally occur in developing countries. So in countries of the third world, 70% to 80%, so the vast majority. Again, this is not finger-pointing, it's just a fact that we have to acknowledge, because if we want to change that, we need to know where we need to start. I hear these discussions here in the developed world, in the UK and in the US, of course, uh, a lot myself, where people say, 
let's just change what we eat and that will have a major impact on our carbon footprint. Um, I have to tell you that I have come to the realization that this is largely a smokescreen of those mega polluters out there who are responsible for approximately 80% of emissions in the UK and in the US, and that's the fossil fuel sector. And the reason why I say that is because this discussion about what we eat seems to sidetrack us and keeps, uh, seems to keep our eyes off the price, which is what can we do to defossilize our economies? So that's not to say that what we eat doesn't have an impact. I'll give you some numbers. A recent publication stated that if you were an omnivore eating a mixed diet, including meat, uh, and you decide to become a vegan, then that would reduce your carbon footprint by 0.8 tons of greenhouse gases, so-called CO2 equivalents per year, 0.8 tons. Contrast that with one transatlantic flight per passenger, which equates to 1.6 tons. So going vegan for one year equals one leg of a transatlantic flight per passenger. So it's not nothing, it's something, but certainly not what some of the reports that we hear day in, day out seem to suggest. Uh, another paper in a very um, high-impact factor journal that came out relatively recently uh, looked at what would happen if the entire U.S., 330 million U.S. citizens, were to go vegan. What came out of that exercise was that we would reduce our carbon footprint by 2.6%. So it is not nothing, it's something, but it's certainly not what some of those voices out there are telling people, namely that all we need to focus on is what we eat and the climate will become normal again. And that is just simply not the case. Why do you think we've got stuck on that now? Because it's, it's been, it feels like it's been a good, a good few years now where we've, we've become sort of a bit fixated, haven't we, on, on diets. Is it because you think it makes people feel like they are they can take control of it, but it's not giving up, like you say, like the, the transatlantic flights, the holidays, that kind of thing. You know, why are we stuck on this and not really looking at the, like you say, the really big polluters? Well, there are uh, a multitude of factors. One of them is that there are well-funded campaigns going on. And uh, for example, I saw BP, British Petroleum, uh, running a campaign on how to reduce your carbon footprint. And uh, they were promoting the use of plant-based diets as a company that has an enormous carbon footprint, pulling out enormous amounts of fossil fuels from the ground, oil, coal, and gas, and then burning them and putting that carbon into the atmosphere. For a company like that to make recommendations like the ones they do, to me is, is sending out enormous smoke screens. And it's very visible to those people in the climate community who pay attention to these things. What concerns me is, that the population is set on a wrong path for solutions, thinking that by replacing their, norm their normal burger or their normal steak or whatever they eat with a plant-based alternative will have a major impact on the climate. And this is one way of keeping those real mega polluters off the hook and those people in farming onto, onto it. Of course, there is, like you say, there's millions or billions, trillions possibly even of dollars sort of behind these industries, behind these fossil fuel industries. Um, if, 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 I'm, if I may, I want to add one more, mm. one more uh, piece to that. Um, the same people who are playing this climate card today, and I want to be very clear about this, I am 
very concerned about our climate. And my whole research deals with reducing climate impacts from animal agriculture. So I do not mean to deflect in any way. But the same people who are being activists around uh, climate and livestock, or livestock and climate today, uh, were already very anti-livestock before, but they used different angles before. They used the animal welfare angle before, they used the food safety angle before, they used the health angle before, and so on. And uh, none of that really resonated well enough to an extent where people stopped eating that. And then they tried the climate angle and they found that that is a much more effective tool. And that's where we are today. How do you think we can readdress that balance? I mean, I know, obviously, you're, you know, you're really big on, on Twitter. You're trying to sort of reintroduce, from what I can see, you're trying to reintroduce some, uh, some nuance to this whole debate and some science. How do we do that, do you think? Because there are some very big um, actors, very big forces involved here that, you know, that you've just outlined. Yeah, so um, in my opinion, the most important thing is that we are fact-based, that we look into what are the true impacts of animal agriculture. And um, for beef, for dairy, for uh, small ruminants, for pigs and so on, um, in the last recent history, uh, complete life cycle assessments were conducted. Um, life cycle assessments are those that look at cradle-to-grave uh, impacts of, let's say, a kilo of beef or a liter of milk or so. And, um, and these various industries know what their impacts are on climate, on water, on uh, air pollutants and so on. So that is a first step that was done over the last few years around the world. So we now know what these impacts are. And these various players, these various industries have pledged reduction goals uh, and they are aggressively pursuing them. For example, here in California, where I live, we have a state-mandated um, reduction goal of 40%, four zero, 40% methane uh, that needs to be reduced by the year 2030, so in only 10 years from now. The state, however, decided that in contrast to normal rules and regulation and fines, they would go a path of incentivizing reductions of methane financially. They help farmers to implement techniques and technologies to reduce methane. Two years after that law passed, our dairy industry has reduced its methane output by 25%. So the dairy industry in the state, which is very strong, is now over halfway on its path to a 40% reduction goal. And this is where we need to go. And this is, I think, where there's a lot of common ground, uh, where people can agree, okay, I might not eat meat myself, but if the meat industry is pulling their weight and they're reducing their emissions, then that's a good thing. But do you think, though, I mean, I'm sort of thinking more, how do we get that sort of nuance back into the debate more, though? How do you, how do you, you know, obviously, I mean, you're, you're a scientist, but you spend a lot of time um, writing and communicating. Mm -hmm. How do you think we, we sort of in, inject that nuance a little bit more? You know, um, when you hear all these, all these reports and so on, um, and these, this really anti-livestock, anti-meat, anti-dairy and so on language, then you hear a small minority articulating that. They are not articulating the will of the people because the vast majority of people, both across the Atlantic where you are and here, um, 
do enjoy consuming animal source foods. I mean, let's be clear about that. Here in the United States, we have 1% of the total population in being vegans. And I might add, and please believe me, I have nothing against vegans. They can eat whatever they want. But just a stated fact from the Vegan Society of the United States is the following. That, f that for every one active vegan in the United States, there are five former vegans. And that means that they have what's called a retention time, which is very low. In fact, 84%, 84% of all vegans stay vegan for only one year. For only one year. And then they return back to what they ate before. Now, to me, that's not a result of a successful diet. I don't know why they stop, whether they stop because they miss flavor or they miss nutrients or whatever that they previously had, but they stop. And so for the media to report that this is the way forward, it's a mass movement and so on, is totally overblown. The vast majority of people enjoys animal source foods. They want to be assured, however, that these foods are produced in a responsible way, in a way that, um, that recognizes Uh, welfare needs of animals in a way that does not deplete natural resources, in a way that does not harm our environment. And here I think agriculture needs to do its homework. Where things are going well, they need to emphasize that. Not with some PR campaign, but just with facts. Farmers need to speak up. Where it's not the case, for example, where you know of farms that are not doing a good job on animal welfare, Those actors need to leave the industry. They have no place in it. Okay, if somebody does not treat the animals right, they need to do something else. And I really mean that. It's unacceptable uh, for agriculture to accept that there are a small minority, but still some players that are not playing by the rules. What Currently, what are the most promising-looking um, bits of research coming out, looking at what, what farmers can actually do to really you know, drive forwards their, their efficiencies and, and reduce their emissions. Some of the most interesting research in and around greenhouse gases of the recent history comes out of Oxford University by professors Miles Allen, Michelle Kane, John Lynch and others who have uh, kicked loose this debate about rethinking methane. Uh, what I uh, alluded to before, which is that methane is very different from the other greenhouse gases uh, and therefore requires a different uh, angle of view uh, really stemmed from them. And they are physicists and chemists and so on. They have nothing to do with animal agriculture. Um, now, what I can tell you is that um, we could be moving animal agriculture into a direction of climate neutrality. Of climate neutrality, meaning we could move animal agriculture into a direction where their practices do not, in a negative way, affect climate. And the way we can do that is by reducing methane. If we were able to reduce this short-term short short climate pollutant, methane, by 20 or 30%, then that would have an effect on what's called negative warming, which is a cooling effect. It would pull carbon out of the atmosphere, and this methane reduction effect would counterbalance other greenhouse gases such as nitrous oxide and CO2 coming from animal agriculture. And that could lead 
indeed to a neutral a climate neutral scenario how can that be done what are the technologies that could get us there feed additives are, are one angle we are doing research here uh, at uc davis uh, identifying different additives you can add to the diet of livestock particularly cattle and we have found that reductions between 10 to 50 percent are possible and likely to be available within the next five years most most effective so far here in california has been the use of anaerobic digesters they look different here than they do in the uk or in germany or so because here the manure of dairy cows is stored in open lagoons a lagoon is a uh, a a facility that looks similar to a lake but it's you know 98 water two percent animal manure and And what people do now is they cap that lagoon, they cover it, and that's why it's called covered lagoon. And that traps all the gases that are generated in the lagoon. It traps those gases, the so-called biogas, and that biogas is then siphoned off and made into vehicle fuel, which is called renewable natural gas, RNG. And that conversion from biogas, manure biogas, into renewable natural gas fuel is the most carbon negative fuel there is on the market today. If you do this, you get incentives from the state of California that are so high that it's very financially lucrative. And it's the best thing for the environment that anyone can do in animal agriculture at this point. This is uh, what, what the state of California is incentivizing like nothing else. Mm, looks like something um, the UK needs to needs to look at then. Well, in my um, opinion, in my opinion, uh, if I were to uh, give you one advice, the advice would be um, own the issue. Okay, so yes, you do produce greenhouse gases. Yes, you do produce methane, but make sure that the true impacts of that methane you produce are accounted for correctly. Secondly, set emission goals. Okay, set reduction goals and communicate with the public that you are owning your responsibility and you're pledging further reductions. And then work aggressively on getting these reductions uh, done. Because, um, you know, arguing with whether climate change takes place, that's not fruitful, okay? And I do not encourage that at all. I think climate change is a serious issue we have to face. Agriculture plays a role. Take that responsibility. Show that you're willing to be part of a solution and show you empathy in the overall theater. And that's what gets you someplace. Don't argue with the activists. That's another thing I want to tell you. There are people who want to get rid of animal agriculture. These are not the ones you want to argue with because that is a discussion that you cannot win and you shouldn't engage in it. You should talk to the majority of the population that feels that the consumption of animal source foods is something that they support but you have to have a fact-based discussion with these people. And I think that's what, what will win uh, the overall discussion. If you could distill it, Frank, into say three or four points that would be like most useful, you think, to farmers when they're trying to talk to people, use these facts, what would you say? Well, the most important thing is, the number one is listen, okay? Listen to the concerns, don't just go into a discussion with your preconceived notion and, and yell back, okay? So if somebody is willing not to yell at you, but to talk to you, um, you should really have a discussion. And I've, I predict that even though you might think 
you might be in a weaker position because you're not used to public speech and so on. Uh, I think you will find that people value you uh, for being an expert in your field because you know way more, if you are a dairyman or a beef producer or so, you know way more about that than anybody who has read a book or has read something on the internet. So first, be authentic. Be the person you are. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Okay? Secondly, equip yourself with facts. And if you, for example, want to get some of those facts, you can go to my webpage, clear.ucdavis.edu, clear.ucdavis.edu, and you will find a lot of the arguments along the lines of uh, impacts of livestock on the environment, um, uh, animal welfare discussions, and so on. So that's the second one. Equip yourself with facts. And um, and then when you see some some big activities going on uh, that you feel really go in the wrong direction, then you should also network uh, with experts and, uh, and get their take on it. Because oftentimes today's discussion is led by activists and not by people who actually know something about it. And that's very disconcerting to people like me. What do you hope, Frank, for the direction of policy around climate change? And I'm not talking just about farming, but just how, how farming can be kind of... Um, brought into it in a balanced way? What's really important is that agriculture is oftentimes portrayed as a culprit of climate change. Um, I encourage you to go into the emission inventory. You, the thought leaders in your industry, for example, just dig those things out. For example, here in the United States, uh, we have one annual report. It's called the EPA Greenhouse Gas Report on Sources and Sinks of, climate, of Greenhouse Gases. Sources and sinks, it's called, and which is interesting because that's really important for agriculture. There are two sectors in society, agriculture and land use, and these two sectors, um, they contribute in the United States to 10.5% of greenhouse gases. So 10.5% of all greenhouse gases in the United States are associated with, with agriculture and land use. 10.5%. And then you go on for another five pages in the same report and you find that the same two sectors are a sink of 11.8% of greenhouse gases. In other words, agriculture is not just a source. Agriculture is also a sink and an important one because plants and soils assimilate and sequester large amounts of carbon. So this is why I'm telling you don't just stick your head in the sand and say, I don't want to be part of this and this doesn't interest me and so on. If somebody flings these kind of accusations at you, then you should really equip yourself and find out what the facts are. And one of the facts, one of the important facts are, is that you are not just a source, you are also a sink. And that is not to be used to deflect off your responsibility, but just to know the whole story. Franks, thank you so much. I could talk to you for ages about this you're such a mind of amazing interesting information and, and facts um but i think we'll we'll leave it there and people have got the website where they can go and get get more facts and arm themselves a little bit a little bit better with uh, with that so thank you so much you are very welcome thanks for having me one last thing if you are interested in this and want to learn more i also have some presence on twitter and my twitter handle is ghg guru so thanks for listening and all the best to you Thanks to Jez for that report and to Professor Frank Mitloner for that fantastic insight and advice. 
Owning the issue and arming farmers with the facts is something we know is important to our listeners and subscribers of Farmers Guardian. That's why this week's edition of the magazine is a special net zero themed edition full of handy tips and advice on how to start or build your net zero journey, plus first-hand farmer accounts from those who are already on the path and how they got there. Pick up a copy this Friday and head to our website fginsight.com for more. Well, that's it for this week and I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with more. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate and to catch up on previous episodes. From us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well in these strange, strange times. Goodbye for now.